Chapter Three of Alan's Wife. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alan's Wife by H. Rider Haggard. Chapter Three. Northwards. I make no apology to myself or to anybody who may happen to read this narrative in future, for having set out the manner of my meeting with Indaba Zimbi first because it was curious, and secondly because he takes some hand in the subsequent events. If that old man was a humbug, he was a very clever one. What amount of truth there was in his pretensions to supernatural powers is not for me to determine, though I may have my own opinion on the subject. But there was no mistake as to the extraordinary influence he exercised over his fellow-natives. Also he quite got round my poor father— at first the old gentleman declined to have him at the station, for he had a great horror of these Kaffir wizards, or witch-finders, but Indaba Zimbi persuaded him that he was anxious to investigate the truths of Christianity, and challenged him to a discussion. The argument lasted two years, to the time of my father's death, indeed. At the conclusion of each stage, Indaba Zimbi would remark, in the words of the Roman governor, almost praying white man thou persuadest me to become a christian but he never quite became one indeed i do not think he ever meant to it was to him that my father addressed his letters to a native doubter this work which unfortunately remains in manuscript is full of wise saws and learned instances it ought to be published together with a precy of the doubter's answers which were verbal so the talk went on if my father had lived, I believe it would be going on now, for both the disputants were quite inexhaustible. Meanwhile, Indaba Zimbi was allowed to live on the station, on condition that he practised no witchcraft, which my father firmly believed to be a wile of the devil. He said that he would not, but for all that there was never an ox lost or a sudden death, but he was consulted by those interested. When he had been with us a year, a deputation came to him from the tribe he had left, asking him to return. Things had not gone well with them since he went away, they said, and now the chief his enemy was dead. Old Indaba Zimbi listened to them till they had done, and, as he listened, raked sand into a little heap with his toes. Then he spoke, pointing to the little heap. "'There is your tribe to-day,' he said. Then he lifted his heel and stamped the heap flat there is your tribe before three moons are gone nothing is left of it you drove me away i will have no more to do with you but when you are being killed think of my words the messengers went three months afterwards i heard that the whole community had been wiped out by an impi of raiding pondos when i was at length ready to start upon my expedition i went to old indaba zimbi to say good-bye to him and was rather surprised to find him engaged in rolling up medicine, assegais, and other sundries in his blankets. "'Good-bye, Indaba Zimbi,' I said. "'I'm going to trek north.' "'Yes, Makumazahan,' he answered, with his head on one side. "'And so am I. I want to see that country. We will go together.' "'Will we?' I said. "'Wait till you're asked, you old humbug. "'You had better ask me then, Makumazahan, for if you don't you will never come back alive.' now that the old chief my father is gone to where the storms come from and he nodded to the sky i feel myself getting into bad habits again so last night i just threw up the bones and worked out about your journey and i can tell you this that if you don't take me you will die and what is more you will lose one who is dearer to you than life in a strange fashion so just because you gave me that hint a couple of years ago 
I made up my mind to come with you. Don't talk stuff to me, I said. Ah, very well, Macumazahan, very well. But what happened to my own people six months ago, and what did I tell the messengers would happen? They drove me away, and they are gone. If you drive me away, you will soon be gone too. And he nodded his white lock at me and smiled. Now, I was not more superstitious than other people, but somehow old Indaba Zimbi impressed me. Also, I knew his extraordinary influence over every class of native, and bethought me that he might be useful in that way. "'All right,' I said. "'I appoint you witch-finder to the expedition without pay.' First, sir, then ask for wages,' he answered. "'I am glad to see that you have enough imagination not to be altogether a fool, like most white men, Macumazahan.' "'Yes, yes, it is a want of imagination that makes people fools. "'They won't believe what they can't understand. "'You can't understand my prophecies any more than a fool at the kraal "'could understand that I was his master with a lightning. "'Well, it is time to trek. "'But if I were you, Macumazahan, I should take one wagon, not two.' "'Why?' I said. "'Because you will lose your wagons, and it is better to lose one than two. "'Oh, nonsense,' I said. "'All right, Macumazahan, live and learn.' and without another word he walked to the foremost wagon, put his bundle into it, and climbed on to the front seat. So having bid an affectionate adieu to my white friends, including the old Scotchman who got drunk in honour of the event, and quoted Burns till the tears ran down his face, at length I started and travelled slowly northwards. For the first three weeks nothing very particular befell me. Such Kaffirs as we came into contact with were friendly, and game literally swarmed. Nobody living in those parts of South Africa nowadays can have the remotest idea of what the veldt was like even thirty years ago. Often and often I have crept shivering onto my wagon-box, just as the sun rose and looked out. At first one would see nothing but a vast field of white mist, suffused towards the east by a tremulous golden glow, through which the tops of stony copies stood up like gigantic beacons. From the dense mist would come strange sounds— snorts gruntings bellows and the thunder of countless hoofs presently this great curtain would grow thinner then it would melt as the smoke from a pipe melts into the air and for miles on miles the wide rolling country interspersed with bush opened to the view but it was not tenantless as it is now for as far as the eye could reach it would be literally black with game here to the right might be a herd of wildebeests that could not number less than two thousand. Some were grazing, some gambled, whisking their white tails into the air, while all round the old bulls stood upon hillocks, sniffing suspiciously at the breeze. There in front, a hundred yards away, though to the unpractised eye they looked much closer, because of the dazzling clearness of the atmosphere, was a great herd of springbok trekking along in single file. Ah, they have come back to the wagon-track, and do not like the look of it. What will they do? Go back? Not a bit of it. It is nearly thirty feet wide, but that is nothing to a springbok. See, the first of them bounds into the air like a ball. How beautifully the sunshine gleams upon his golden hide! He has cleared it, and the others come after him in numberless succession, all except the fawns, who cannot jump so far and have to scamper over the doubtful path with a terrified bah. What is that yonder, moving above the tops of the mimosa, in the little dell at the foot of the copy? Giraffes, by George! Three of them! There will be marrow-bones for supper to-night. Hark! The ground shakes behind us, 
and over the brow of the rise rush a vast herd of blesbok. On they come at full gallop, their long heads held low, they look like so many bearded goats. I thought so. Behind them is a pack of wild dogs, their fur draggled, their tongues lolling. They are in full cry, the giraffes hear them and are away, rolling round the copy like a ship in a heavy sea. No marrow bones, after all. See? The foremost dogs are close on a buck. He has galloped far and is outworn. One springs at his flank and misses him. The buck gives a kind of groan, looks wildly round and sees the wagon. He seems to hesitate a moment, then, in his despair, rushes up to it and falls exhausted among the oxen. The dogs pull up some thirty paces away, panting and snarling. Now, boy, the gun. No, not the rifle. The shotgun, loaded with loopers. Bang! Bang! There, my friends, two of you will never hunt buck again. No, don't touch the buck, for he has come to us for shelter, and he shall have it. Ah, how beautiful is nature before man comes to spoil it! Such a sight as this I have seen many a hundred times, and I hope to see it again before I die. The first real adventure that befell me on this particular journey was with elephants, which I will relate because of its curious termination. Just before we crossed the Orange River we came to a stretch of forest land some twenty miles broad. The night we entered this forest we camped in a lovely open glade. A few yards ahead tambuki grass was growing to the height of a man, or rather it had been. Now, with the exception of a few stalks here and there, it was crushed quite flat. It was already dusk when we camped, but after the moon got up I walked from the fire to see how this had happened. One glance was enough for me. A great herd of elephants had evidently passed over the tall grass not many hours before. The sight of their spore rejoiced me exceedingly, for though I had seen wild elephants, at that time I had never shot one. Moreover, the sight of elephant spore to the African hunter is what colour in the pan is to the prospector of gold. It is by the ivory that he lives, and to shoot it or trade it is his chief aim in life. My resolution was soon taken. I would camp the wagons for a while in the forest, and start on horseback after the elephants. I communicated my decision to Indaba Zimbi and the other Kaffirs. The latter were not loath, for your Kaffir loves hunting, which means plenty of meat and congenial occupation, but Indaba Zimbi would express no opinion. I saw him retire to a little fire that he had lit for himself, and go through some mysterious performances with bones and clay mixed with ashes, which were watched with the greatest interest by the other Kaffirs. At length he rose, and, coming forward, informed me that it was all right, and that I did well to go and hunt the elephants, as I should get plenty of ivory, but he advised me to go on foot. I said I should do nothing of the sort, but meant to ride. I am wiser now. This was the first and last time that I ever attempted to hunt elephants on horseback. Accordingly, we started at dawn, I and Dubba Zimbi and three men. The rest I left with the wagons. I was on horseback, and so was my driver, a good rider and a skilful shot for a kaffir, but Indaba Zimbi and the others walked. From dawn till midday we followed the trail of the herd, which was as plain as a high road. Then we off-saddled to let the horses rest and feed, and about three o'clock started on again. Another hour or so passed, and still there was no sign of elephants. Evidently the herd had travelled fast and far, and I began to think that we should have 